Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today, we have with us Leo Denault, the chairman and CEO of Entergy. Hi, Leo. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Marty? Great. I'm really pleased to have you with us to talk about all kinds of things that have been in the news. Uh, most recently, the, the massive Hurricane Ida that afflicted your uh, territory. How has your utility responded, and what might you be doing differently in the future as a result of these weather events? The uh, the the response from the utility has been, you know, from our team has been what it, it typically is. It's been well organized. Um, the response has been and been well carried out and executed. Um, as you might guess, we've had significant amount of damage done by storms that are are really, when you think about Hurricane Laura and Hurricane Ida, um, the strongest storms to hit um, hit us since the 1800s. Um, so they really are um, what you would think of as unique events. Um, we assembled, for example, in, in Hurricane Ida, um, there's about 28,000 resources between ourselves, our contract partners, and, and the significant mutual assistance that we've gotten from the industry. Um, we were able to manage supply chain issues. We were able to manage the... Um, Leo, the resources you're talking about, 28,000? thousand linemen that came in to help? The linemen, tool workers, vegetation workers, as well as um, scouts, etc. So it's really a cross-functional team that has to come in and manage the entire process because, as you might guess, one, we have to scout what are, what's the damage, where is it, what's the extent, what's going to be required, where do we prioritize resources. Um, there's a whole logistical challenge of making sure that we're capable of feeding and housing and supporting uh, that many resources, so it's. Let's talk about that. Is that an unprecedented size of uh, support? And uh, your company has invested on uh, smart grid and a lot of new technologies. Talk a bit about how that has enabled you to orchestrate this kind of a force. And I'm sorry, I interrupted. It is the largest, is it not? Yes, yes. We've never. Um, this was the largest one that we had uh, ever assembled. The second largest was last year during Hurricane Laura. We just finished the deployment of our automated metering technology, and we do are in the process of continuing to add uh, new um, technologies to the distribution grid, and those do help um, identify where outages are, how what's occurred, where the circuits are, et cetera. As you might guess, some of the damage that we incurred with the size of these storms, um, there's there's a lot of area taken out so where you really you you do see the benefits of it but but it's it certainly those those technologies will provide benefits even during just thunderstorms and other outages where they really help pinpoint where we need to go but this situation as i said was 28,000 people we had to make sure we could house them feed them and some of those folks are linemen some of those folks are vegetation workers because we've got a lot of clearing to do as you might guess there's a significant amount of the damage that's done is not only the winds on the poles but things like trees on poles and vegetation on wires and things like that where we need the vegetation workers tool workers etc 
So if these storms are getting more frequent and more devastating, does it call for a higher standard of resilience and how might you go about achieving that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a higher standard of resilience because our, what we are finding is the standards that we're using today for our new investments um, work well even under these conditions. So, for example, we've spent nearly $10 billion over the last five years on new transmission and distribution infrastructure, all of which meets or exceeds current standards. So, for example, our Class 1 poles on the distribution side that can withstand 150-mile-an-hour winds and our new transmission structures that are designed to withstand 150-mile-an-hour winds. In both Hurricane Laura and in Hurricane Ida, those new technologies and those new structures withstand those storms quite well. So I'll give you uh, an example. In Hurricane Ida, we had um, a section of our transmission system that was directly in the path of the storm that had been rebuilt. And um, there's roughly 380 new transmission structures in that in that new rebuilt area. Only three of them were damaged, and they were damaged not by the winds but by debris. And when I say debris, for example, one of them was hit by a barge that <laughs> broke root loose. So debris is, you know, you say debris and people think, you know, pebbles or something like that. But no, this debris was a barge. Um, and so, so the, the, you know, 377 of those structures um, were undamaged. Um, however, you know, we haven't replaced, obviously, all of our structures yet. And so the ones that were primarily damaged in the, in the storms have been the, um, the older technology, which still in the midst of its depreciable lives um, and, and still, you know, 99% of the time works quite well, but they were designed to withstand winds of 110 miles an hour. And what we saw in Hurricane Laura were gusts over 180, and you saw gusts over 170 in Hurricane Ida. The new technology works. The older technology was struggling. So let's talk about the eight pathways that we've read about of uh, power into New Orleans that were cut because Mm -hmm. of damage. Were those transmission lines capable of of standing up to the 150 standard, or or were they older 90-mile-an-hour standard? Um, the majority of that is the older, older structures. But I will say, so there was a there was a highly publicized tower that fell, that that was near the um, Mississippi River, and the cable across the river was taken down, and so that that one path was was impacted quite substantially. The other seven. Um, we were able to restore reasonably quickly. Now, it is unfortunate that all all eight of them um, had issues, and that's something that we need to, to work to, to rectify. But even in that, there's about those seven other str- lines um, comprise about 1,500 um, transmission structures. 99% of those structures were undamaged. What we saw was, again, debris hitting wire, taking down cable, shield wire that was damaged that made contact, uh, some structures on the lines that failed that then obviously made it 
take longer to repair those lines because we had to um, redo the structures, et cetera. And so, for example, the one path that we did use coming in from the east to start to get lights on in the city within 48 hours, um, the structures were not damaged. That was more the, the shield wire insulators and that sort of thing that were damaged, which allows for a pretty um, rapid rebuild of, uh, you know, restoration of that system. We were able to, that's how we were able to get um, between that and the New Orleans power station lights back into the city within 48 hours. Without getting into the weeds too much, we, we seem to have the confluence of two major things going on here. One, the storms are getting much more virulent and damaging. And two, we have the country focused now on the need for new infrastructure with possibly hundreds of million, billions and maybe more coming in, into the electric grid. Is this a time for you to, to look at those pathways into New Orleans and across the whole service territory and say, we need to build to a higher standard? And if so, what kind of investment do you think is needed? Yeah, so so I think really what we need to do is is take a step back. And again, the standards, the new, the new infrastructure is is proving to be robust against even the storms that we're seeing today. But but what we do need to look at because of the increasing severity and the increasing occurrence, the frequency, is to determine whether or not the cost-benefit relationship has changed. So, for example, there's 1,500, those 1,500 structures that I mentioned on the on the seven lines that um, go into the city are all still within their originally determined useful lives and their regulatory determined recovery lives. So let me stop you right there, Leo, and just ask, maybe the, the uh, depreciable lifetime is in, in uh, not valid for what we're in right now. Maybe those need to be reviewed. Would you like to join with regulators and see if, if that needs to be changed? Well, that's what we that's what we plan to do is to look at the, the 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 potential options for added resilience to the system, the cost of those different options, and then come to a, an agreement on the cost benefit discussion about should we do should we re- look at polls that to their traditional standard would be considered perfectly fine and take them down and put up new ones. It's not a a uncommon way to look at different technologies as they progress. We just went through that. You had asked about, um, you know, for example, smart infrastructure or automated metering. We got to a point in time where automated metering has a cost-benefit relationship such that taking out old meters and putting it that are working just fine and putting in a new meter makes economic sense. It provides a better level of service, and the cost savings make it worth doing. If storms are going to occur more frequently and with more severity, then again, that cost-benefit relationship to look at it and say, well, otherwise, this pole would be perfectly fine. It's been here for 25 years, and it might have another 10 or 15 years left on its useful, quote-unquote, useful life. But now, if we think the once-in-a-hundred-year storm is once in 10 or once in five or once every year, that cost-benefit relationship between changing it out makes 
makes more sense. And so we need to work with our regulators on doing that. Like I said, over the last five years, we spent roughly $10 billion in TND um, equipment that meets or exceed those standards. We're showing that that works. Um, if we, if what hadn't happened since 1856 has happened twice 12, in the last 12 months, maybe that cost-benefit relationship has changed and we need to come to some agreement with, with our stakeholders about if that's changed, how aggressive should we be in, in changing out millions of polls, for example. Where would that dialogue be? I mean, you, you're a unique utility in the sense that your major metropolitan area is governed by a city council, and you have state regulatory commissions in, in some of the state in the states that you serve. How could you orchestrate that most effectively? Is there a need for some kind of joint uh, oversight of this? Do we need to get FERC or NERC involved? Well, you know, obviously, we we through NERC and CERC, et cetera, we have standards that we have to live up to. Um, and I think the planning of the system can be done between us and our regulatory jurisdictions. Obviously, with with the cooperation of MISO and and others in the region. But what we're going to see, obviously, is different standards for different types of weather events in different parts of our service territory. Um, so, if you think about where we sit, we're on the Gulf of Mexico, with in New Orleans and Texas. But by the time we get up into Arkansas and Mississippi, we get all the way up, you know, basically to West Memphis, Tennessee. Um, so we are seeing the winter storms. We're seeing um, the hurricanes, tornadoes, et cetera, all across that system. And so in some parts of our system, what we'll be looking at is 150-mile-an-hour winds along the Gulf Coast, this I-10, I-12 corridor area. And in another part of our service territory, we'll be looking at um, increased need for anti-galloping devices on transmission because of ice. Um, so, so it really needs to be done across the entire system for different types of events, and we need to work, you know, obviously with our our folks and with with the regulatory jurisdictions to make sure that we're tailoring not only what it is that we're doing, but but how that serves and how that gets recovered and how far we should go in that jurisdiction. So the Mississippi Commission will have, for example, the the ability to, to work with us on how far do they want to go in Mississippi. Um, and here in Louisiana, we'll work with the Louisiana Commission and, and the city council as well on what options should we should we pursue and 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 look at. Really, there's three sciences involved here. There's climate science, which we all look at for for two reasons. One is obviously to to make a more environmentally sustainable footprint so that we don't worsen the situation that we find ourselves in, as well as adapt to the situation we find ourselves in. There's physics that has to do with how do you make sure you keep the lights on based on how the properties of physics run the grid and the system and provide that resiliency. But then there's economics as well, because um, none of this comes without a cost. And again, it's that cost-benefit relationship that we need to be rethinking to say, we had a storm in 1856 that was the rival of Laura and Ida, and it hadn't happened. You know, Katrina was the closest thing we got to that in between. 
which was 16 years ago. And now we've had two, what you would argue, 100-year storms within 12 months. If that severity and that, and that frequency is going to increase, well, then, then what we would have otherwise believed 10 years ago was too costly given the benefit you would re- receive. Maybe now the consensus would be that the benefits are greater. So if this is not all uh, enough challenge for you, you also have the fact that of your 30,000 megawatts of generation, you've made a commitment to cease using coal generation by 2030. Is that correct? So coal is a very, very small small part of our footprint now. So we've already started to transition away from coal, and our intention is to be completely out of utilizing coal by 2030. And, and we'll replace that with, with primarily renewables. Um, and right now, the best renewable resource that, that is for our region of the country, as you know, renewables are somewhat regionally um, specific in terms of what works well and what doesn't. Solar works well in our service territory. Wind is not quite there yet. Um, I would envision that it will improve to where it gets to be a resource that we can utilize. We could utilize it more in the northern part of our service territory than we could in the south. So primarily renewables in the in the form of solar battery storage. And we've also started to develop um, the technology where we can blend and then ultimately um, solo fire, utilize hydrogen in dispatchable units. So we've got a, a project that we're developing in Texas right now that when it is developed, it will be able to blend 30% of the fuel utilizing hydrogen with the capability for us to develop it further to get to 100% hydrogen, at which point it would be dual fuel, either natural gas or hydrogen or anywhere in between. I, I believe you have plans to develop 3,500 to 4,000 megawatts of renewables by 2030. Is that correct? We're right now targeting 5,000 megawatts by 2030. Um, it would not surprise me if we don't exceed that um, level of, of renewables um, from a function of both um, our desire to, to deploy them quickly as well as the desire of our customers to reduce their scope two and even scope one emissions by um, both using more and more of those renewals specifically potentially through some of our green tariffs which could accelerate some of that build um, or by electrifying things that are today running on fossil fuels on their side of the meter which we aren't involved in if we electrify those and we utilize renewables to meet that need that could also accelerate and increase that number as well so is that going to really change the, the look and feel of your utility dramatically? Uh, yeah, there isn't there isn't that much solar, but we do already have one of the cleanest fleets in the United States for large-scale generation. It's because of our um, roughly 5,000 megawatts of nuclear power and the gas-fired generation that we have. We went through a portfolio transformation beginning in early part of the 2000s where we built new, far more efficient, either bought or built new, more efficient gas-fired units. So, for example, the new units that we just constructed several years ago are 40% more efficient in terms of the amount of CO2 that they emit versus the legacy assets that we retired. So, we've used gas as a transition fuel. We will continue to need dispatchable inertia on the grid given, um, if for no other reason, the size of our industrial customer base and the size of the facilities that they operate. While we add significantly more renewables and develop out potential for 
um, a dispatchable renewable resource such as um, you know hydrogen inside dispatchable units that could provide that long duration storage that's kind of missing right now. So if you think about it, you've got renewables, wind and solar, and battery storage. Battery storage is pretty limited in short bursts. If you need to get what we would have needed, for example, during the winter storm URI, a week's worth of storage, or if you need seasonal storage, like you'll find you need in a lot of regions of the country, we need something more like hydrogen capability to be able to meet those needs without having emissions. Do you see, given the unique uh, makeup and problems of the New Orleans area, where you have pumps that work very well in keeping floodwaters out, during the last Hurricane Ida, the need for for more kind of, of storage within the city. So if you have a catastrophic failure of lines coming in again, those pumps can continue to work. Yeah, I mean, I think I think resiliency is really obviously taking on a bigger and bigger role in what we do, again, because that cost-benefit relationship is changing given the increased severity and the increased occurrence of these weather events of whatever kind they are. And so as we look at that resiliency, um, we've already started to deploy things like backup generation on critical facilities. Um, it's a product that, that we're offering in some of our jurisdictions where backup generation is something that we can will own, operate, and maintain for you. For example, we dispatch it into the grid when it's required um, to meet peak load, but if there's a, an outage, customer gets those backup generating capability. Microgrids are another thing that we're looking at in some regions. Rather than beefing up the transmission infrastructure, a microgrid itself might be more um, applicable. And certainly, as we talked earlier, resiliency in the form of Utilizing the higher, the new higher standards more broadly as we as we accelerate the replacement of what otherwise would be considered perfectly good equipment, you know, we may need to go there because of that increased resiliency benefit that they would have. And looking at other things um, that traditionally have been too costly to do on wide scale, like undergrounding and the like, um, certainly there's there's a space for all of that and across the system. Yeah, in New Orleans included in terms of, of making sure that we provide as much resiliency as we can. Give me a, a sense of, of the, the relationship here. Uh, you've mentioned some promising new technologies that are playing out across the country with increased deployments of renewables, microgrid storage, high use of hydrogen. Um, can it make an appreciable dent on your reliance on traditional T&D? Obviously, it's not going to go away. But could you say maybe 25% uh, of of your customer need can be secured through these new technologies across your grid, or is it going to be a, a smaller impact? I think it would be a smaller impact on how much T&D is needed, but I think what it will be is a bigger impact on how much system reliability that you provide and sustainability. So, for example, hydrogen, what we're developing for hydrogen today would be would be akin to a gas-fired, you know, CCGT, um, except that it would have no emissions because what you would be combusting in it is hydrogen. Now, what we need to do to get that hydrogen to, to get that to to work effectively is to make sure that we're going through the process to make sure that we're making as green a hydrogen as we can. Because today, for example, obviously. Gray hydrogen, there's a lot of emissions in the production of hydrogen, and so 
you know, stepping up the production of hydrogen so we can use it in a power plant that doesn't emit any CO2 creates greenhouse gases that we want to avoid. So hence carbon capture and sequestration and then electrolysis as we progress through those to make those more cost effective, you'll get a hydrogen technology that looks, acts, and feels like a gas-fired unit without emissions, which the grid desperately needs, as I mentioned, because the grid needs that inertia, you need those reserves, and you need that duration for when, you know, if you go a week without the ability or access to renewables, you need something that could last for a week and you could get that there. Same goes with new small modular reactors. Um, that's technology. We're not actually developing any of that, but certainly following it closely, where, again, you have large-scale production of emissions-free electricity be really critical in addition to battery storage and renewables that can be more localized. We're looking at putting renewables on the distribution grid as opposed to a transmission level to be able to make sure we're a little bit closer to the customer. And then microgrids, as I mentioned, are another way where we'll still have potentially transmission infrastructure into that system, but as that added level of reliability, the, the the microgrid itself would be capable of operating um, should you lose that access. So it's it's really, a, um, you know, the electric grid is the largest, most complicated machine on, their, on Earth. Um, so there's a lot of pieces and parts that all serve different uses. And that's what we need to make sure that we do is fill in all the use cases with the appropriate emissions-free technology. Leo, you personally and your company recently were honored by the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, their Climate Leadership Award. Congratulations. Thank you. I want to ask how the whole debate over sustainability and emissions reductions is requiring a cultural change. And you convened a group called the Gulf Coast Carbon Collaborative of uh, Gulf Coast industry representatives to talk about the need for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. How hard of a sale is it to your customer base, and how do you hope to make the sale? You know, I think I think um, the 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 whole group of stakeholders we deal with is more and more aligned on this topic every day, and more now than we ever have been. Um, you know, Marty, we were the first utility in the United States to voluntarily limit our greenhouse gas emissions. We did that back in 2001, um, where we set the target that we were going to cap our emissions at 2,000 levels. We came back years later and made that a reduction of 20%. We've exceeded those targets. Now we've got the 2030, the 50% reduction in our emissions rate, and then the 2050 um net zero commitment. We originally, when we originally made those commitments back in the, in, you know, the early 2000s, I think the reaction was somewhere between who cares and, and what are you doing, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but now all of our customers, you know, the large industrial customer base that we have along the Gulf Coast, they all have carbon reduction goals of their own. Um, and and we're working with them to help them meet those carbon reduction goals. Um, so I think I think in all areas, whether it's investors or customers, the communities we serve, our employee base, um, particularly as um, more and more younger people come into the into the company, there's a there's a, a great alignment on what we want the outcome to be. 
And as I said earlier, there's three sciences at work here that we really need to make sure that we all keep abreast of. Climate science, which is driving us all on the resiliency path as well as the, as the path to a greener, um, a greener operation. There's, there's the, you know, the physics piece of it. We need to keep the lights on. And I think that's, that's one of the things that you hear out of, out of folks like me in our industry a lot is we need to make sure that the system is still reliable and that we aren't, we aren't creating a system where the plan has to be to shut the power off. I mean, that obviously, unfortunately, does happen, but we don't want to plan that into the system. So we got to get the laws of physics right in terms of those different operational characteristics that are required to meet load on demand instantaneously um, all the time. And then economics has to come into play because obviously we, we all talk about environmental justice. There's several forms of that as far as I'm concerned. One is certainly to make sure that, that how we locate our facilities and how we respond and how we interact with our communities does not put anybody at a disadvantage. But the price of the product is another thing that can be can be problematic when when you do things that that cost so much that that customers can't afford to pay their bills. We got to get all three of those sciences correct. But one of the things that I've really seen, particularly over the course of the last couple of years, is a, is a, is more and more people coming to the table to try and solve the problem of reducing carbon. More and more people coming to the table willing to investigate all options that allow you to do that in the most efficient, cost-effective way. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, by the time we hit our 2030 goal for Entergy New Orleans, it'll be one of the cleanest um, cities in the United States, and the, the emissions rate of Entergy New Orleans will be somewhere in the 270 to 290 pounds per per megawatt hour if we if we go along the path of we are now and don't do better than that. A ship sitting in port here in New Orleans, a cruise ship, for example, might emit 1,500 to 2,000 pounds per megawatt hour of diesel engines that they run while they're parked to keep just electrifying that ship and plugging it into the grid in New Orleans can reduce from 2,000 to 270 the amount of CO2 that comes out of the, that gets emitted into the air by just switching to our power. And if we can go faster and get, get to zero faster by 2050, that'll be zero. We should be going after those really efficient, really cost-effective ways of reducing carbon so that we can take into account the laws of economics so that we don't put an undue price burden on our customer base, particularly those that live below the poverty line, which for us is about 25% of our customer base. Last question, do you really see increased electrification of transportation happening in your service territory? I, I, I do. We don't, I would say we're not a part of the country where the electric vehicle craze has taken off, but it's, it's, it's going to for two reasons. One, it's going to be more and more desired by entities themselves. And if we're getting to the point where, you know, sometime within the next decade, 50 to 60 to 70 percent of the cars put on the road by the automobile manufacturers are electric cars, well, you're going to transition because that's what's going to be available. And certainly that's going to create the opportunity to really reduce emissions. Um, in our service territory, particularly in Louisiana, Texas, in addition to the transportation sector, the industrial sector is a large emitter of greenhouse gases. And there are a significant amount of opportunities to electrify 
their processes, whether it's compression used in pipelines or LNG, um, you know, liquefaction to create LNG to be able to export um, overseas, um, whether it's to provide the, the energy to somebody to do carbon capture on the back end of the creation of industrial gases like hydrogen, um, where we use renewables and nuclear power to be able to, to create green energy that creates blue hydrogen, for example, um, and ultimately electrolysis, which would create using you know, nuclear power renewables to be able to create to create green hydrogen. A lot of electrification opportunities that that many of which you'll find are are pretty economic, even if you were to do it today with the current emissions profile that we have as a as a utility. Okay. Well, it's been great talking to you, Leo. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Marty. It's something that we are at Entergy have been passionate about for 20 years. And um, I know uh, um, we're excited about the opportunities of where we can go, both in resiliency as well as with our sustainability objectives, and particularly not meeting our sustainability objectives, but meeting the sustainability objectives of our customers and the communities where we all live and work. So thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. And thanks to our guest, Leo Denault, who's the chairman and CEO of Entergy in New Orleans, for sharing his insights about the changes in his company and the industry. You have been listening to Grid Talk. Please send us your feedback or questions to gridtalk at nrel.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite platform. For more information about the series or to subscribe, please visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.